0: Coming up, a conversation about archaeology and historical synagogues in the land of the Bible with Professor Jody Magnus, right after the music. Welcome to the Upwards podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university,
1: our community, and the church.
0: Hello, and welcome back. I'm Dan, your host, and delighted to bring you another episode of the Upwards Podcast. Most listeners to this podcast will probably have at least a passing interest in the fields of archaeology and ancient Near East and classical studies. If the Bible is a book that you are deeply shaped by, it's almost a natural next step to wonder about the cultures and the peoples from which the Bible came and who wrote and produced the various books of the Bible. Well, today's episode heads right in that direction. We're privileged to feature a conversation between Gordon Govier and Dr. Jody Magnus. And I'll just say a bit about both of them. Gordon is a resident of Madison and a longtime partner of Upper House. He's reported on archaeological issues for decades, including for Christianity Today. And he's also the treasurer of the Madison Biblical Archaeology Society, an organization founded in 1967 that carried... Uh, carries forth a distinguished history of local engagement with the fields of biblical studies and archaeology. And finally, Gordon, as he mentions at the top of this interview, also hosts his own podcast, The Sword and the Spade. And I encourage you to check that out. That's in the show notes, a link to that podcast. And in this conversation, Gordon is speaking with Professor Jody Magnus, She's the Kenan Distinguished Professor for Teaching Excellence in Early Judaism in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She earned her B.A. from the Hebrew University and her Ph.D. in Classical Archaeology from the University of Pennsylvania. And she's won numerous teaching awards and fellowships and is the author of many books. She's also taught for the great courses, which some of you may be familiar with including a course on Jesus and his Jewish influences, and that may be of particular interest. And finally, Dr. Magnus mentions in this conversation her recently updated edition of her classic and award-winning book, The Archaeology of Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls. That just came out with a new edition this year, updated from its original 2002 edition, and that book also won the 2003 Biblical Archaeology Society's Award for Best Popular Book in Archaeology. So this conversation is full of energy and interest and it gets into how Dr. Magnus became an archaeologist, but a lot of it does spend time on archaeology in the land of Israel or the land of the Bible. If you're not familiar with Qumran, which is a key site for archaeological findings for decades now, I'd encourage you to do just a brief primer, maybe even just the encyclopedia entry at your Favorite online encyclopedia to get a sense of where that is in relationship to major sites that might be more familiar, like the city of Jerusalem uh, and the significance of Qumran and the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls there in that place. And finally, I just want to mention that this episode is a celebration of International Archaeology Day. This year, that is on October 16th. And also in celebration, We, along with Gordon, are hosting Dr. Magnus for a lecture at Upper House on Saturday, October 23rd in collaboration with the Madison Biblical Archaeology Society. And the registration for that event, which will be on one of the sites that Dr. Magnus uh, has spent years excavating in the land of the Bible, Uh, the registration for that will be in the show notes and that will be a really interesting talk. It's not going to be streamed or recorded. So if you do want to get that uh, on your calendar, that will be actually at Upper House on October 23rd at 6.30 p.m. Okay, with that, I'll turn it over to Gordon for an upwards conversation with Dr. Jody Magnus.
2: For almost 40 years, I've been hosting a weekly biblical archaeology radio program that's now become a podcast called The Book and the Spade. I enjoy talking about and learning about biblical archaeology every chance I get, and it's a delight to be invited to be a part of this Upwards podcast. My guest is Jody Magnus. Jody Magnus is an authoritative voice in biblical archaeology. She's the Kenan Distinguished Professor for Teaching Excellence in Early Judaism at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Her books win awards, and she's been recognized numerous times for teaching, research, and scholarship. And, Jody, I'm delighted to once again have the chance to talk with you because you've taught me a lot through our previous conversations. And I appreciate your willingness to share on this topic of biblical archaeology, which contributes so much to our understanding of the Bible and the culture from which it came. And that's why I think biblical archaeology is important. What is it about archaeology that you decided to make it your life's work?
1: <laughs> well, first of all, thank you for having me back, Gordon. And um, I am spending the semester here in medicine, and I am absolutely loving it. It's just such a wonderful city. Um, so I decided to that I wanted to be an archaeologist when I was 12 years old. And that was thanks to a constellation of things. Um, I had a seventh grade history teacher who was very good. And we learned about the ancient world. And I fell in love with ancient Greece, and particularly ancient Athens. And ever since then, my interest has been focused on the classical world. Um, And about the same time, I was going to Girl Scout camp and finding fossils of shells. And I had the usual childhood fascination with dinosaurs. Anyway, it all just sort of came together. And I decided I wanted to be an archaeologist. And that was it. Ever since then, I wanted to be an archaeologist.
2: Did you grow up in Israel?
1: No. Well, no, I didn't exactly. Well, that's yeah. Um, I uh, so I am uh, from the US. I'm actually a third generation Philadelphian, proud to say. Uh, but when I was 15, the summer I was 15, I went to Israel on a summer tour and I fell in love with it and decided I wanted to go back and finish high school there. And I spent my 11th grade year um, persuading my parents to let me do it, and also finding what I thought was an appropriate program, so I ended up going to Israel when I was sixteen and finishing high school there, and then just stayed and did my undergraduate degree so I guess part of my growing up was in israel but but the latter part of my of my youth i suppose mm-hmm.
2: you got your bachelor 's degree at Hebrew University then in Israel and your Ph.D. back at the University of Pennsylvania. And in between, you spent three years as a field guide and naturalist at En Gedi, a tropical oasis on the western shore of the Dead Sea. What did you take away from your time at En Gedi? Yeah,
1: Yeah, that, that is, I'm so glad you asked, because people don't usually ask me about that experience, um, but it was really important. And so one of the things that happened when I was an undergraduate in Israel that I realized studying archaeology, was that our professors would talk about different archaeological sites around the country. And um, most of my classmates were familiar with those sites because growing up in Israel, they had taken school field trips and other kinds of field trips, and they were pretty intimately familiar with the country. And I, of course, was not. And so one of the things that I really felt I lacked when I finished my B.A. was that kind of intimate knowledge of of the land of Israel, what's called in Hebrew, Yediata Arez again, there's a little bit of a backstory, which I won't go into. But uh, I I decided after I finished my BA that I wanted to stay in Israel, and that the best way to get that kind of intimate familiarity with the country would be to uh, work as a, a field guide and naturalist at a field school. So here I have to explain what field schools are, because we don't have anything like this in the US. So in Israel, there is a private organization called the Society for the Protection of Nature in Israel, which is somewhat analogous to the Sierra Club in the U.S., but not exactly. And they run things called field schools around the country in different parts of the country where there is a permanent staff of guides whose job it is to take groups on hikes and nature walks around the area, that particular area. Um, Most of the guides are uh, either... um, doing that work as part of their military service. So if you're very fortunate in Israel, you can do that for your military service, or they're doing it immediately post-military service. And I was I wanted to do it, but I fell into neither of those categories. And it just so happened that at the time I was looking to join a field school, to find a position at a field school, the uh, director, the head of the Ein Getty Field School, was looking for an archaeologist for their staff, and I had just finished my BA in archaeology. So I was very fortunate that that he basically hired me onto the staff of guides. And um, I worked there for three years. Ein Gedi is, I think, the oldest, if not the oldest, certainly one of the oldest field schools in Israel. It's an amazing place, the most beautiful place in the world, I think. And of course, the area that we covered, which was the western shore, of the Dead Sea, included sites like Qumran and Masada. And lots of other archaeological sites. And it's just, in terms of the natural beauty, it's it's just a spectacular area. So I, I spent three very, very happy years there from 1977 to 1980, um, working as, as a field guide and naturalist. And, and, and you know, um, I don't know if I, I can say I have that kind of familiarity with the entire country, but certainly with the area around the Dead Sea, I, I um, gained a, a very intimate familiarity.
2: The Bible talks about David retreating to En Gedi. I don't know if it was for three years or not, but some <laughs> similarities there.
1: That's right. Well, and, and there are all sorts of um, uh, legends, I, I guess they are, associated with David in the area. Of course, even if the biblical account is is true or accurate, which we don't know, but even if it is, that sort of thing would leave no 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 visible remains in the archaeological record, right? So, um, you know, if he simply hid out in the area. But, but it's true that the Judean desert was used throughout history as a place of refuge, because it is so close to Jerusalem. Um, and so, you know, people looking for refuge would flee, and, and it's a very rugged landscape with lots of natural caves. So it was a good place for people to hide out. And so that story of David, even if it's not true, makes sense in a historical context.
2: And there is some archaeology at En I think there's some kind of prehistoric sites, but also a synagogue that was excavated many years ago. And in recent years, some texts that were excavated and put away because they were burnt beyond recognition have been finally read by a professor at the University of Kentucky who spoke here a few years ago.
1: Right. There's a story about that, actually. Yes, there's a yeah so um so yes yeah, so 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 Angeti is an oasis um which you which you mentioned, and it 's like Jericho in that regard, so they 're both oases in the Judean desert with perennial sources of fresh water, and that 's what makes Anggeti so spectacular the you know the rugged landscape the the lush vegetation in the middle of the desert. And so you don't have fresh water like that in the middle of the desert and let it go to waste. So throughout history, Engedi has attracted settlement. And uh, there was, of course, in antiquity then um, a settlement at Engedi, which was a fairly prosperous village that was based on the cultivation of exotic kinds of tropical plants um, and particularly in antiquity something called the oppo balsam which was used to produce a very costly kind of perfume and so the archaeological remains at Angti have been excavated there's a biblical tell at ti which was excavated back in the 1960s but then also as part of the ancient village from a from a later period um, than the biblical tell from the ancient village of the Roman and Byzantine periods we do have this synagogue building which is a small synagogue building it's a modest building, but has a very interesting mosaic floor with the second longest inscription found so far in any uh, mosaic floor of any synagogue. And uh, those excavations were conducted in the early 1970s by a team of archaeologists from the Hebrew University led by um, the late Professor Dan Barag. And one of the things that they discovered was in the destruction level of the synagogue, which was a destruction level that showed signs of burning, they found a burnt scroll Near the Torah Shrine, and that scroll was missing for decades. I actually looked for it um, during my uh, my time in in Israel. Um, It was missing for a very long time, and after Dan Barag's death, um, it it resurfaced and it has now been read. and It turns out to be um, at least part of the Book of Leviticus, if I'm not mistaken, and very interesting. I guess it's been dated uh, on scientific grounds to the second century a d, but the 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 destruction level dates to the early seventh century a d. So it shows that these scrolls, and this is still tr- true today of torah scrolls, right? that they you know, they're used for centuries after they're written. Um, and so anyway, yes, there is a there is a very interesting story about that particular scroll. It's the only ancient Torah scroll that's ever been found in any ancient synagogue anywhere.
2: So it's very special. Mm -hmm. Uh, After finding out about that research and the lecture here at uh, Upper House, um, I was able to visit the synagogue on my next time in Israel. It was just amazing to see where all that took place. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful beautiful mosaic, too, there. When we talked, our first interview 25 years ago, (laughs) Qumran (laughs) was the subject, and you talked about how you had kind of accidentally become a Qumran Dead Sea Scrolls expert. I guess that's partly because you spent so much time near Qumran. Mm -hmm. The Dead Sea Scrolls, of course, are a perpetual biblical archaeology story. Even this year, some new 2,000-year-old texts were found in some caves near the Dead Sea. And the latest news, there's a new explanation for the function of Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Daniel Vainstub of Ben-Gurion University has suggested Qumran was not a place where people necessarily lived, but was a gathering place for an annual renewal ceremony, kind of a retreat center in the desert.
1: Yeah, well, there's a lot to unpack there. But before we get started, um, let me just mention that my my book on the archaeology of Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was originally published back in 2002, um, the revised updated edition just appeared in print in in May. Uh, It's actually a product of the pandemic when the pandemic started and I was stuck at home and the editor... Uh, at the press had been bugging me for years to update the book. I thought, well, okay, so now I have time, so I'm going to. Re-. So anyway, the revised edition is now out, and something to got- do. yeah, exactly, something to do. And so reflects my more um, my more recent thoughts on the site. My my basic understanding of the site has not changed in big picture, but there are some significant differences. But anyway. Um, first of all, about the the supposed the, the the quote unquote recent discovery of of Dead Sea Scrolls, and and you're right, the, there was a release that came out a number of months ago from the Israel Antiquities Authority about the the discovery of new Dead Sea Scrolls, and you know it it this is a little frustrating for me because of the way the term Dead Sea Scrolls was used in this announcement. So,
2: it's nowhere near Qumran
1: exactly, and so you know. We have ancient scrolls from sites around the Dead Sea that date to various periods, Um, but they have no connection with the site of Qumran or with the group that lived at Qumran, which was a Jewish sect that most scholars, including myself, think were the Essenes. And so when, when the term Dead Sea Scrolls is used, as, for example, in the title of my book, The Archaeology of Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls, usually what we are what we mean is the scrolls associated with the site of Qumran that were found in the 11 caves surrounding Qumran that were uh, deposited in those caves by members of the group, the sect that lived at Qumran in the first century B.C., first century A.D., and include earliest copies of the Hebrew Bible and um, their, their own literature, their sectarian literature, but uh, Now, you can, you know, not incorrectly use the term Dead Sea Scrolls to more broadly describe any ancient scrolls from the area of the Dead Sea without any connection to Qumran. And that's what we have here. And for this reason, by the way, many scholars now prefer to refer to the scrolls from Qumran not as Dead Sea Scrolls, but as Qumran scrolls or something like that. But at any rate, the term when they, in that release, used the term Dead Sea Scrolls. So I think for many people, it connoted automatically a connection with Qumran, when in fact, there is no connection at all to Qumran, what these are scrolls that were deposited in those caves or brought to those caves by Jews who were not at all connected with that sect, um, and in fact, who uh, deposited those scrolls in a slightly later period than the time of Qumran in the second century AD, and not the first century, or BC or AD. Um, And so it's it's a little frustrating because it got a lot of publicity is oh we have new dead sea scrolls and well yes there are new dead sea scrolls but they're not those dead sea scrolls. So anyway that's that's just to clarify that. Not to say that the discovery is not important in and of itself, but it just to, to say that the the term mud it, to my in my opinion, muddied the sort of waters and maybe was deliberately intended to do so, because
2: it always gets attention, the term
1: Dead Sea Scrolls, right, everybody has heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And if you just said ancient scrolls from, you know, wherever it was, nobody would have paid much attention. Um, Now about this, this supposed new theory. So yes, there is a publication. And that's another kind of frustrating thing in working in Qumran, which is that every time there's a new theory, you know, wow, blows up, there's lots of publicity, Oh, there's a new theory, what do you think, you know, Um, in this particular case, it's it's not it's not a particularly outlandish theory. I mean, there, there are, in my opinion, uh, outlandish theories about Qumran. This is not one of them. But what's a little bit frustrating to me is that this theory is not actually a new interpretation. Um, and it's it's an interpretation that's been suggested, um, maybe not exactly exactly the same, but pretty much along the same lines by other scholars. For example, Geza Fermesh had, a suggest- long time ago, a really you know eminent uh, Dead Sea Scroll scholar at Oxford had suggested that uh, that uh, the members of this sect gathered at Qumran for the annual renewal of the covenant ceremony. Um, a number of years ago, a scholar named Ed Cook published Published an article in which he also suggested that Qumran was a place where members of this sect gathered. So the idea that you know this new, this supposedly new idea, actually isn't really that much of a new idea. Uh, and um, I mean, we'll just have to wait. I I only saw sort of the the publicized reports. I haven't seen the scholarly publication yet myself. So have to wait and see what else there is in in this you know in this new theory.
2: You mentioned updating your book. What were the important updates that you thought needed to be included in the new edition?
1: Yeah. Um, Well, thank you for asking that. Um, So one thing that I did was to, uh, you know, in the time since I published my book back in 02, there there have been a lot of new theories proposed uh, interpreting Qumran in different ways. And although personally, I have rejected pretty much all of them for on various grounds. Uh, I did include that in my my book, I felt it necessary to address the various interpretations and to address why I think they're not as convincing or as well founded as the traditional interpretation that this was a sectarian settlement or a center for a sectarian group. Um, another uh, thing that I that I sort of expanded on, um, because this is, these are topics that have been addressed in more detail by by other scholars in recent years. Is the presence of women at the site right? And what is the evidence or not evidence for presence of women? Some of the new evidence uh, from um, excavations in the area of the cemetery. You know what what new information do we have in general from excavations that have been conducted and published since the time I wrote my book? Because there has been work that's continued to be done on Qumran. Um, to me, the biggest difference in the way that I view Qumran is because of uh, a piece of evidence that I was familiar with previously but now interpret differently um and that is the animal bone deposits so one of the you know Qumran has a number of peculiar archaeological features features that are not paralleled at other archaeological sites, and one of these are the animal animal bone deposits where we have uh, the bones of animals, all of them are kosher species. So basically, sheep, cows, and goats, that uh, were um, that were slaughtered, butchered. Um, the meat was cut into chunks. The chunks of meat were boiled and roasted, and the the bones and the meat was eaten off the bones. And the bones were then deposited in various areas around the outside of the settlement in, in open air areas, either inside pots or covered with pieces of broken pottery. This has been the subject of a lot of debate. DeVoe decided that these were probably the remains of special ritual meals that were eaten by the sect, and that is the interpretation that I followed in my book in O2. No,
2: he was the original excavator. That's
1: right. Thank you. Yes, Roland DeVoe was the original excavator, and, and so that's you know, that's been sort of the mainstream opinion, um, although there have been other interpretations that have been suggested. Now um there has there was an interpretation that was suggested and which DeVoe considered and rejected. Uh, and has been proposed by a minority of scholars, that that these are the remains of actual animal sacrifices. And I changed my mind about the majority opinion and and actually think that these are the remains of animal sacrifices. And the reason is that if you look at publications of ancient temples and sanctuaries around the ancient world, around the Mediterranean, around the Near East, including in, in the area of Israel, whether it's Tel Dan or Mount Gerizim or whatever, We have exactly this same phenomenon on the grounds of temples and sanctuaries, that is deposits of animal bones with pieces of pottery or sometimes with pots, sometimes mixed with ash, which, by the way, we also have a Qumran, which are basically the remains of the sacrifices that were burnt on the altar, but also the remains of the, the actual meat because when when a sacrifice was conducted in antiquity usually what happened is parts of the animal were burned on the altar and you get ash and pieces of broken and pieces of burnt bone but then the rest of the animal was cooked and consumed on the spot by the people who visited the sanctuary by the priests and the worshippers and so the remains of those 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 animals that were that were consumed on the spot, that were burned or consumed on the spot, were deposited as, as trash, basically, as garbage, on the grounds of the sanctuary. And you find these deposits all around the grounds of ancient sanctuaries. And when you look at Devoe's description and the photographs of these animal bone deposits at Qumran and compare them with what you see in the archaeological record at ancient sanctuaries and temples around the ancient world— it's identical. I mean, they're, they're, they are absolutely identical in pretty much every single way. And so that I, I now believe that what we have here are the remains of actual animal sacrifices. And this is really important because most scholars have rejected the possibility that the Qumran sect offered animal sacrifices. Now, many scholars believe that the Qumran sect refused to participate in the sacrifices offered in the Jerusalem temple on the grounds that the temple was polluted. But taking that additional step and, and 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 establishing an alternate sanctuary at another spot where you're offering your own animal sacrifices from the sort of point of view of a Deuteronomistic, a Deuteronomy, you know, kind of point of view, that idea, that's something that has been very hard for, for scholars today to accept. It's actually not as far-fetched as it sounds. We know that there were other temples and sanctuaries in the ancient world that were dedicated to the God of Israel where animal sacrifices were offered, including... Um, the uh, uh, temple at Leontopolis in Egypt, which operated at the same time as Qumran and was presided over by priests who were descended from the same family that apparently was connected with the leadership of the Qumran sect, that is the Zadokites. So at Leontopolis, you have the Onayid branch of the family. So it's not actually as far-fetched an idea as it sounds. And so what I think is that the Qumran sect basically withdrew and you know um constituted themselves as an as a, as kind of an alternate or or you know conceptual desert sanctuary um and they're operating sort of along the lines of what was going on with the when the Israelites are wandering in the desert wilderness you know and and so with the sanctuary you know mm. the tabernacle in their midst and so I think that that's what 's going on at Qumran, and I think that because of the archaeology so one of the things that scholars have hashed over, over and over again, and I discuss it in the book and and on the article that was, that I published before the book about this, taking certain passages from the Dead Sea Scrolls, the sectarian literature of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and trying to prove one way or another whether the sect actually did this sort of thing, right? Scholars have marshaled various passages to prove or disprove this. And, and, the, the problem is, is that, again, it's a matter of interpretation of the literature, um, a matter of who was writing it, when the literature was written, um, and there's no consensus among scholars about this. So in my opinion, here the archaeological evidence is is unequivocal, and we simply as modern scholars have to adjust our view of what was going on in uh, early Judaism and at the time of Qumran in light of the archaeological evidence. So I think that's actually the biggest Difference between you know, and the most significant difference between my previous Qumran book and and the version now.
2: Should there be evidence of a sacrificial altar?
1: Then? Right. Yeah, and you know that's that's actually been one of the main objection. Well, that's a, not more, that is one objection to the idea that that there was a sacrificial cult at Qumran is that there there are no remains of an altar. Um, to my mind so so let me just say first of all Jean-Baptiste Humbert, who is the archaeologist at the French School in Jerusalem, the École Biblique, who is basically the heir the successor to the original excavator de Vaux, he published an article a number of years ago suggesting that in fact there was an altar located on the northern side of the site. He identified a, a structure as an altar. The problem is there are pretty much no pictures of it, the plan of it, it's impossible to see anything. It's very hard to see that 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 is, in fact, an altar. I mean, I'm not ruling out the possibility that it is, but it doesn't, you know, I can't see that what he has published indicates that it's an altar. Um, So there is that suggestion. But most scholars do not accept that. And most scholars say, well, there should be an altar. And that was actually one of the things that DeVoe said also, that there's no altar. Now, in fact, altars, you know, could easily be dismantled i if mean it was a bronze were, altar it wouldn't have been a bronze, it probably would have been a stone altar made of un, unhewn stones and that's you know there was there was continuous occupation at Qumran even after the site was uh, destroyed by the romans in 68 because the romans left you know a garrison at Qumran after 68 the devos period 3 so you know that's the sort of thing that easily could have been dismantled and and in my original article and then in the book i looked at plans from devos excavations and photographs and there is actually an area on the north side of the site uh, where there are thick deposits of ash mixed with pieces of animal bone uh, and, and a few pieces of pottery. And in the middle is a void, a significant void, and it looks like the, the ash piled up around something. That would have had, based on the dimensions of the void, would have had the dimensions of an altar, according to biblical dimensions, Um, and that that whatever it was, was removed and left this void. And so I suggest that that may have been the location of the altar, the ash around it would have been the ash that was, you know, scraped off from the sacrifices, and that at some point that altar was dismantled. Um, you know, it's hard to prove a negative. So I can't prove that that's the case. But but that's my suggestion. And I think, again, that the archaeology supports that possibility, even if I can't prove it.
2: Wow, fascinating. Well, it's been what 75 years, I guess, since the original Dead Sea Scrolls discovery and scholarship is is continuing and growing and more and more Dead Sea Scroll scholars are applying themselves. What what's interesting about Dead Sea scholarship these days? that uh, you look at?
1: Wow, that's such a big question. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, pretty much all of the Dead Sea Scrolls are now fully published and accessible. So one of the things that has changed over time is that instead of having, you know, new scrolls coming to light, so to speak, that or previously unknown or previously unpublished scrolls, which are now what's happening more is sort of the integration of this huge corpus of, of of information um, and and trying to sort of understand it in the big picture. So I think that one of the things that we're seeing in Dead Sea Scroll studies is more of a nuanced approach to the Dead Sea Scrolls rather than sort of big bombastic, oh, wow, look at this. We didn't know this before, but rather sort of trying to. So just to give you one example, um, one of the things that has changed over time is the sort of understanding of the group at Qumran in the larger context of this sect, right? And that they're that they're not necessarily the only group, and I never thought they were anyway, but that's how it's sometimes presented, um, that they're not necessarily the only group of this sect, and they're not even necessarily the main group, that we had groups that lived elsewhere, that the Uh, beliefs and practices of the members of this sect changed over time, something that we can see by examining carefully the different versions of the same scroll that might be found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, because we have different variant texts of some of the scrolls. So you can see, well, this one mentions something and the other one doesn't, and one's earlier and one's later, so maybe this reflects their evolution over the course of time. And another, I think, big picture change and i hope that that this is true is the integration of dead sea scroll studies within the larger field i have always thought that dead sea scrolls are not a field qumran is not a field you know i don't specialize In the archaeology of Qumran, I specialize in the archaeology of Palestine or the archaeology of the land of Israel in the Roman Byzantine and early Islamic periods. And Qumran happens to be one site. So I I think that and I hope that one of the things that is happening is that rather than being segregated as a field of specialization on its own— that the study of the Dead Sea Scrolls or Qumran Scrolls is now becoming more generally a part of biblical studies, the study of early Judaism, and even the study of, let's say, early Christianity, right, or rabbinic Judaism, so that it's not just, oh, you specialize in Dead Sea Scrolls, or you specialize in Qumran.
2: Last year, 2021, the pandemic year, the big Dead Sea Scrolls story were the fake Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered in American museums and elsewhere. There's about 75 scroll fragments, I think most are very small, that uh, came on the market after 2002, roughly. Um, and, and many of these have been decided to be through testing and other ways, mostly testing, I guess, modern forgeries. Do you think all of these latter-day Dead Sea Scrolls are modern forgeries?
1: Let me answer that differently. I actually published or co-published an article about this with Dennis Mitzi a couple of years ago. Um, and so, so you know, d- people who specialize in, in scrolls, right, Dead Sea Scroll scholars, or people who approach it from the point of view of a text specialist, right, um, are concerned with what you're talking about, right? So let's take these these fragments that, that do not have a documented... Provenience, but simply surfaced on the antiquities market. And so we don't know whether they're authentic or not. And let's subject them to scientific tests to see if they're authentic ancient scrolls or not. That's not my perspective as an archaeologist. My perspective as an archaeologist is that you start with provenience and you go from there. And so, from my point of view as an archaeologist, if these scrolls have no documented provenience and do not have a documented sort of CSI uh, history where you can trace where they originally came from and and so on, then in fact we should not be dealing with them at all. Um, That uh, if you want to deal with them, fine, but they should be set aside and designated as scrolls that are, you know, have no provenience and that, you know, don't necessarily add anything to our understanding of of the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's That's what I think.
2: And deposition is held by a lot of archaeologists. I yes, think.
1: that's right. That would be that's that's correct. And not just by a lot of archaeologists, but by our professional archaeological organizations. And I would refer you to the positions, for example, of the American Schools of Oriental Research. ASOR, uh, well, actually, now they changed their name. So the American Schools of Research, I guess now, ASOR, uh, and the Archaeological Institute of America.
2: And the reason for that is because it encourages looting?
1: Yeah, that's right. The acquisition of antiquities on the antiquities market encourages looting because sites are then looted in order to feed the demand.
2: And that removes the antiquities from their context and it's the context that gives most of the value. To That's it.
1: right. So for archaeologists, we're concerned with context. That's right. So something that has no context has basically lost its value as an archaeological artifact.
2: I think it was the last time we talked You suggested that synagogues in the Galilee have been misdated, (laughs) dated earlier than they should be. And you were going to partially excavate a synagogue and come up with better data to help solve that problem. And that didn't quite go as planned.
1: Well, it it actually went better than planned. But um, yes, I did get a bit derailed. So you're right. I still hold that position, by the way. I still hold the position that the so-called Galilean type synagogues which are these monumental buildings like the like the synagogue at Capernaum which many of your listeners are probably familiar with that these buildings have been dated by archaeologists too early to the, the traditional dating is 2nd and 3rd centuries AD and I think that they date mostly to the latter part of the 4th century but especially the 5th and 6th centuries and I set out to to try and sort of establish whether I'm right or wrong by excavating my very own galilean type synagogue at a site called Hukok in Galilee and by the way for your listeners if they want to look it up it's that we have a website a dig website hukok.org h u q o q .org and you can see all the information there uh, we started excavations in 2011 we've been excavating every summer since then except the last two summers due to covid And we have been coming uh, up with the remains of a monumental Galilean-type synagogue building, um, which, on the basis of the evidence that we have so far, which includes pottery, coins, and radiocarbon dating, uh, appears to have been built in the early 5th century, so a little bit after 400 AD. But what's so amazing about this building is that instead of being paved with flagstones like like the typical Galilean-type synagogues like Capernaum, for example, it is paved with mosaic floors. And not just any mosaic floors, mosaic floors that are divided into a series of panels that depict, for the most part, biblical stories. And we have scenes of Samson and Jonah and the building of the Tower of Babel and Noah's Ark and the the parting of the Red Sea. So it's absolutely extraordinary. So, yes, that that did – the mosaics have definitely um, sort of, you know – made the push the the project in a slightly different direction. My original goal was to excavate just half of the synagogue, do a five year project, excavate half the synagogue, find the dating evidence, and then you know, let it be and somebody else then could come along and excavate the rest and see if I'm right or wrong. But with the mosaics, we we now are committed, of course, to excavating the entire building. And we've got about two-thirds to three-quarters of it excavated so far, so we still need about two to three more years to finish it up.
2: So these are ancient biblical scenes that rival uh, the scenes at Dori another yeah, synagogue?
1: Yeah, actually, um, so Dori which is a synagogue in Syria uh, and, and dates earlier, it dates to the 3rd century A.D., um, has a spectacular... Uh, Decorative program of of colorful wall paintings with biblical scenes on on its walls, but not the floor. So ours our synagogue is analogous in having this amazing program of of you know biblical stories depicted, but in the mosaic floor, not on the walls, and and being you know a couple of centuries later, right than than Doryropus, um, so and and being located in in Israel in Galilee and not in 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 Syria, so basically being a Palestinian synagogue and not a diaspora synagogue. So there are differences. There are also differences in the way some of the same scenes are portrayed. So at Ropus there is a scene of, of the parting of the Red Sea. We have a scene of it's not exactly the parting of the Red Sea. It's Pharaoh soldiers being swallowed. By giant fish in the Red Sea. That's what we have. Um, but but anyway, um, so there are some of the same stories that are depicted in both synagogues, but they're depicted differently, and they're depicted in different media, and they date to different periods. But in in terms of this idea of having a synagogue building decorated with an array of colorful panels depicting biblical stories, the two synagogues, yes, would be analogous in that regard
2: the art form mosaic art form flourished in the Byzantine period this time that we're talking about what was it about mosaics that made them so popular
1: yeah i mean actually mosaics flourished through the roman period in general right i mean we have earlier mosaics if you go back to the roman world you know but but it's true they're very popular in in late antiquity let's say the 4th 5th and 6th centuries when one of the major mosaic centers was Antioch in Syria. So we are sort of in Galilee, we're kind of adjacent to one of the great centers of mosaic production. Uh, that's not to say our mosaics were produced by anybody from Antioch, but but we're in an area that, you know, had a lot of mosaics. And in fact, if you look at the... Uh, at the um, Byzantine churches over in Jordan, on the other side of the Dead Sea, um, there's they're also decorated with a lot of mosaics, right? So, including the
2: famous Marble map.
1: That's right, including that's right, exactly. So, um, and like Ummarassos, there's tons of mosaics. So there's this the scenario area where apparently mosaics were very popular. Um, the thing about mosaics in in these kinds of buildings, whether they're churches or or synagogues. Um, is that you could use the mosaics to depict your to get your message across right to use these biblical stories in order to convey. Your basic underlying message of whatever it was—salvation or you know whatever—use um, the the stories to help educate the worshipers who came in, um, perhaps also to complement the liturgy that was conducted inside the building. And the great thing about mosaics, of course, is that uh, that when you walk on them, you know they're they're pretty durable, so you know that's uh, that's also good for a public building. So yeah, I think there's there are a number of reasons why mosaics were popular, but we happen to be in an area where. Um, mosaics were common uh, through late antiquity.
2: I think one of the things we talked about in a previous conversation was the fact that some of these mosaics are a zodiac design, and that would seem unusual in a Jewish synagogue.
1: Yeah, there are. we have a zodiac. We have a helio-zodiac cycle at Hukok. Uh, like everything else, it's a little different from the others that are in ancient synagogues. But um, we now have 10 ancient synagogues in Israel that have a heliozodiac cycle. So it's we don't have any in diaspora synagogues, at least not so far. But in, in the land of Israel, we have 10 ancient synagogues that had a heliozodiac cycle. And this is one of the very interesting things. And there's been tons written on it about what was it about the heliozodiac cycle, that was so meaningful to these congregations. Um, I'm not going to answer your question farther than that because that would take like another couple of hours. Um, pretty much every single scholar that you ask has a different opinion about what was the significance of the heliozodiac cycle. I had my say. I published a long article in Dumbarton Oaks Papers in 2005 um, about it. But but every single person has a different idea. It's very interesting that we do not find this motif in churches. So whereas Jews and Christians used some of the same biblical stories to decorate their, their public buildings, whether it's the story of uh, the offering of Isaac by, by Abraham or whether it's um, the story of Daniel in the lion's den or whatever. So Jews and Christians often use some of the same biblical stories, but the helio-zodiac cycle is not found in churches. It's It's particular to to synagogues, and again, so far to synagogues in Palestine. So why exactly that is, again, it depends on how you interpret the significance of the motif.
2: I think one of the things that you've compared mosaics to are stained glass windows in churches. Is there a connection? Oh, I wasn't the
1: one who did that. But but, uh, anyway, no, and I don't know if there's a connection to that. Um, I don't know. Uh, At some point, it is true, um, at some point, uh, Christians um, and this was already, you know, in in late antiquity, uh, decided to place their figured scenes, biblical scenes, and things like that on the walls and ceilings of the building, and not on the floor where they would be walked on. Whereas in, in synagogues, of course, they were walked on. But whether that has any connection to, you know, later uh, uh, stained glass windows, I don't know. Um, I should also say that that often. Um, public buildings in the Roman and late Roman world had glass windows. They weren't stained glass but had glass windows, but we we rarely find you know they they rarely survive so sometimes you'll if you open up archaeological reports in the glass chapter, you'll see references to glass window panes from the building but um but not stained glass.
2: Well, let's uh, come bring our listeners up to date with what you're working on now, which is a book on Jerusalem. Yeah. Why do we need another book on Jerusalem? That's a really
1: good question. (laughs) You need to ask the editor at at Oxford University Press, who pestered me for years to write this book, why we need another book on Jerusalem. So I finally relented. But... Uh, it, I, I, I really didn't want to write this book. And, and I resisted for a very long time. And he just, he persisted for a very long time. Um, but I resisted because because Jerusalem is so complex. My previous book was about Masada. Masada is a fairly easy story to tell. It has, you know, it's nice and neat. It has a beginning, middle and end. And it's a, you know, it's one site with, you know, basically a very easy, you know, levels that you can go through. But Jerusalem is infinite, you know, So so Masada is finite but Jerusalem is infinite, and there's no end to Jerusalem. Um, and, 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 and anybody who knows anything about Jerusalem, and this includes me, would never agree to write a book about it. This is a book that's not a specialist book. It's a trade book, so it's aimed at a non-specialist audience. So to try and write a book that sort of covers the complexity of the city throughout time for people who are not specialists, this is a really daunting task, and, and that's why I resisted for a very long time. Um, and then I finally decided – at some point I looked around and I looked at the books that are out there that in this genre, in this kind of category about Jerusalem – and for the most part, not all, but but for the most part, they're written by people who are not specialists in the field. They're not archaeologists. They're not people who have excavated in Jerusalem. They don't specialize in the archaeology and history of Jerusalem, which is not to say that those books aren't necessarily good books, right? But they weren't written by people who, who actually know the city the way that I know and the way that other archaeologists who work in Jerusalem know it. So after that, I thought, well, shoot, if they can write a book about Jerusalem, I can write a book about Jerusalem. And maybe, you know, we should have a book written by somebody who actually knows all of this stuff uh, as intimately as at least some of it I know. Uh, So I agreed to do it. And um, the original idea, it's, it's sort of tentatively, you know, publishers always change titles. So right now it's tentatively titled Jerusalem Through the Ages. That's not necessarily what the title will end up being the original idea was to take it up to the Crusades and to have each chapter starting at the beginning and have each chapter focus on a particular date in Jerusalem's history, a sort of transition date in Jerusalem's history, right? So what did Jerusalem look like, you know, on the eve of the Muslim conquest or, you know, whatever, Um, and and then to take it up to the Crusades. I'm now—so Thanks to the pandemic, I have to say, I was able to get a a head start on this project because my original idea was that I was going to write it this year during my sabbatical year. And it's a good thing that that did not happen because there's no way I could have written it in a year. There's there's absolutely no way. And so this was actually one of the benefits of the pandemic. After I finished my revision of the Qumran book, I got started on the Jerusalem book. And I, I am now working on the draft of what I think will be the last chapter. Uh, and, and they are just drafts at this point, but the draft of the last chapter. And I think that because it's so long right now that I probably won't take it up to the Crusades. I'll probably end it with Charlemagne's time. That is around the year 800 in the early Islamic period. Um, And that's the chapter that I'm working on right now. So I'm struggling right now with, you know, trying to explain the complexity of the Dome of the Rock, which is extremely complex, and the other monuments on the Temple Mount or Haram, as it's called in in, uh, Arabic. Um, and, and, And at the moment, I'm actually submerged in a debate over these monumental buildings that were discovered by Israeli archaeologists in the late 1960s. Around the western and southern sides of the Temple Mount, and what are they, and what is their correct date? There's a whole controversy about that. So, um, so that's how the book is going to go. It is going to be more, much more complex and and more technical than my Masada book, um, just because it's impossible not to but i'm hoping that i'll be able to explain things in a way that people who are not specialists will understand and also that won't put them to sleep as they're reading it with lots of illustrations so they can follow along because i do think it's important to understand to understand the background to these debates and and to understand because these are debates that that are central to claims that are made about jerusalem whether it's you know who has the who who were the you know, did David have a palace in Jerusalem? And, and, you know, who has the rights to certain parts of the city, historical rights, you know, and that archaeology is always cited, right, as sort of the, you know, one of the things that legitimizes these kinds of claims. And I think it's important for people to understand that the archaeological evidence is not unequivocal, that it's a matter of interpretation and how you interpret. And, and even if you can interpret it in different ways, the the um, claims are not necessarily based on the most Reasonable or highly supported interpretation of the evidence. So I, I'm going to try and get that across to to readers. We'll see how it turns out. But I have a year before it's due to the publisher. So I'm you know struggling with all of that complexity.
2: Sounds fascinating. I'm looking forward to it. It's my understanding that. The Dome of the Rock, this famous Islamic building, is actually in the design of a Christian church.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a num- That's exactly right. So, a number of scholars have pointed this out. This it, again, there's you know tons of literature on. That's another problem with dealing with Jerusalem that every single thing has like tons of scholarly literature. So, of course, the Dome of the Rock, being I think the most prominent monument in Jerusalem, uh, is uh, has been the focus of a lot of attention and and already many scholars have pointed out the similarities between the the layout and the decoration of the Dome of the Rock and contemporary some contemporary Christian churches primarily the rotunda of the Church of the Holy Sepulcher which is the circular structure that that enshrines the tomb uh inside the tomb of Christ in the middle um but also other you know churches that are analogous to that we have um the uh structure inside the um the uh, Church in the Nativity in Bethlehem, which encircles the grotto, right uh, and um there's a church just outside Jerusalem, the cathisma Church, uh, which also has this octagonal layout. so you know so yes there's there's no doubt there's there's no doubt that uh, that at least one of the sources of inspiration for the Dome of the Rock were these sort of what we call centralized churches uh, in Jerusalem and its environs. Um, which were used to enshrine a central focal point, usually a focal point for pilgrimage. And and often these buildings are described as martyria, because in the Christian world, they enshrined a site associated with a martyr, meaning somebody who had testified to the truth of Christianity, right, who was a witness to the truth of Christianity. Um, And so this kind of structure then clearly inspired the layout and decoration of the Dome of the Rock, which enshrines this, this outcrop of rock, the the foundation stone in the center, and one of the big questions is what was the significance of that rocky outcrop at the time the Dome of the Rock was built? Because later certain traditions arise and become associated with that rock, but what were the associations with that rock at the time the the structure was built in the 7th century? So there's a huge amount of literature on that Hmm. as well.
2: Hmm. Well, there's lots more I'd like to talk about, but i want to get into one more area before we wrap this up. We've been doing a series of programs on seals and seal impressions and wet sifting recently. Earlier this year, I reviewed some of the news digest in the biblical archeology span magazine that I edit artifacts. And I noticed few reports about discoveries of seals and seal impressions up to 2005. Then almost every year after that, there's been at least one often with names of people we know from the Bible and the Temple Mount Sifting Project was involved in almost all of these, and that began about 2005. And these seals are some of the few examples we have of ancient Hebrew inscriptions. Should more excavations be using wet sifting?
1: I think it, it depends on the context, right? So, so one of the things that you have to understand is that is that—and I say this as somebody who directs an excavation, right— so it's a matter of how you allocate your resources, right? So wet, wet sifting is is great because it retrieves these kinds of teeny little artifacts like you're describing um, that you wouldn't necessarily find otherwise. Uh, and um, But it, it also requires, it, it, it absorbs a huge amount of resources, right? And so you need to have a lot of funding in order to be able to, and, and, and manpower, right, and equipment to be able to do that. And it's not necessarily always... Something that is worthwhile, depending on what you're digging through, right? So it depends on the context. If you're digging in a context like, um, like for example, this pool that was excavated by the Gihon Spring, where they also wet sifted, right, and they found they found a lot of these uh, these seals or ceilings actually. Um, then I think it makes sense, right? But if you're just excavating, I don't know a you know, uh, a fill of, um, I don't know, uh, a medieval, you know, of a late medieval fill from, you know, that accumulated after, I don't know, whatever— it doesn't necessarily make sense because then you're going to, you're not going to, so you have to allocate your resources in a, in a wise way and you have to decide how to excavate. So I do, I, and, and so I think that what you're seeing now is archaeologists recognizing that in certain contexts, yes, it does make sense to wet sift. And depending on where you're excavating, you might want to do some tests first and wet sift and see what you come up with and then decide, do I want to allocate more resources and expand it? I say this because, you know, in my synagogue at hukok we are we're not wet sifting but we are we although we're doing flotation which actually retrieves some of this stuff but we are uh dry sifting all of the fills that we found fi- that we're finding above our synagogue mosaic floor which were sealed by a late medieval floor and these are fills that are a meter deep in a building that measures 15 by 20 meters i mean it's a huge amount of fill that we and it's it really slows up the project but in In terms of my priorities, it's extremely important because one of my priorities is dating our building and and finding things like coins and other objects in the fills. It's something that you might not come up with if you weren't doing the sifting. So it's a matter of how you're allocating your resources, and and that's one of the things that archaeologists have to do in the field is decide what is the nature of the remains and and what is the best way to retrieve the maximum amount of data. So, So that's what I would say, and I think that that's why you're seeing more wet sifting now, at least in certain contexts, but it's not something that would be suitable for everything that you excavate.
2: Well, we're run out of time. Uh, uh. There's so much more I'd love to talk to you about, but um, we have limited time available. And so I want to thank you for this fascinating conversation. And I hope we can do it again sometime.
1: Well, thank you for having me. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It
0: is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear. Audio engineering by Andy Johnson and Graphic Design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at UpperhouseUW.